This is a journey into sound. This is a journey into sound. A journey which along the way will bring to you new color, new dimension, new value. Hi, this is Joe from the New Black Gospel. Today is a very special episode. It's an episode called Homeschool with Cooley, Daggers, and Joe. It's about sitting down with your friends and your family and your loved ones and talking, really talking, doing the hard work, doing all the hard work that the Black Gospel is out here to do. Like I said in the first episode, I'm concerned with archiving the beauty we create what we do to heal each other and ourselves. I'm thinking about the albums our artists have dropped, the literature, the comedy, the chants, the affirmations that we all store on the soles of our shoes in order to keep moving, the steps we take to build ourselves back up. And I've been calling all that walking, all the ecstatic sweat, the new black gospel. And I gotta keep that sweat in myself because I feel like I'm slacking. I'm feeling like I'm not doing enough, then I need to make this a true gospel, that this needs to be my truth and your truth, all of our truths. So here we go. Just going to step right into it. Joe. Yeah? When did you discover your blackness? If I'm going to be perfectly honest. Which you should. This is what it's about, man. This is everything. I didn't realize until I was about, (laughs) let me be completely frank, I didn't realize until the day after Mike Brown died. That's two days after my birthday. It was on uh, August 8th, I believe. And I had just turned 26. And it was right before I had a life-altering event where I almost died from a sickle cell crisis. And I thought about his body, and I thought about all of that strange fruit. And it reminded me of Amadou Diallo and Trayvon and Renisha McBride. It reminded me about all of the people that had come before Mike Brown and certainly all of the people that would come after him if we didn't change things. And I became consciously aware. I could feel it on my skin. I was sweating with fear. And maybe that's what being black is about right now. It's being fearful. And all of these steps I've been taking recently are trying to get rid of that fear. What about you, Cooley? I realized that my blackness was pretty much permanent. It was something that I would always have to carry with me, like a coat that was always just too small. Like, you could never outgrow it. But you always felt the tightness around you. And my family always made me conscious of that I'm always wearing that coat and people always see me wearing it. But I should style it up. I should basically kowtow to their sort of fashion when my fashion isn't always in style, but they're always appropriating it. It's like I always see people either bleaching their skin to be light-skinned or be lighter or be close to whiteness. Everything that they aren't, but they just can't bask in the glory of their own blackness. Because it's a bad thing. It's like I have to baby step into their world. And by baby step, I mean kowtowing. 
I mean assimilating. And my light skin, I can tan as much as I want, but I won't be as black as a Nigerian. I pray for it every day. So it's pretty much I had to just be conscious of that and how it's just going to hurt people and hurt myself because they don't even know who I am. They're just pretty much assuming because I have this coat on. That's what I'm wearing. That's what I'm talking about. It's deep, man. So what do you do with the coat? Well, I have now made it into a petticoat, oh. a raincoat slash solution, you know, you know nice is, little things. That's very fancy. Right. I, I pimp my coat out. I have, like, make, sometimes I let people tell me how great my coat is. Like, if we're going to be quite frank, this is the new black gospel for a reason. You're going to hear a lot of biblical references, such as this story. Ooh, who's the man in the Bible that had the fabulous coat? I don't know. Jesus? No, not Jesus. I think it was another one with Jay, like, like Joseph. Joseph? Are we going to go for Joseph? Hmm. We'll figure it out later. This is also another part of the black gospel, basically researching and re-educating. So let's just say for right now, the story is about Joseph. He had this fabulous coat. People admonished it. People coveted it. But it was like, he by himself was such an awesome person. He was very charitable, very honest. Nobody saw all those things. They took them for granted and thought it was for softness. But when he put on this coat, oh, the coat now makes him somebody. He's wealthy. Because what? He's assimilated into your thought? He's just crossed over into your ideologies and that makes it okay? That makes it pretty? Something is not less pretty just because you haven't thought it to be. Do you feel less pretty? Oh, yeah. Because when people say, oh, come here, light skin, I'm just like, oh, God, little Wayne owe me money. <laughs> it makes me feel so ugly, so, so taken after for all the wrong reasons. Because they are just all the wrong reasons. You're pointing out my light skin because it reminds you of whiteness. You just put me back on that pedestal of whitehood that I can't reach. There's a girl named Stacy right now that's ugly as sin. But because she's white... She is just so gorgeous. Because it protects her. She doesn't mm. need the coat. Or maybe she has her own coat. Mm -hmm. Maybe whiteness is just as much a coat as blackness, but it affords you different opportunities. Oh, yeah. Because they'll never say no coats on in this store. Like, no t-shirt warning, no sandals warning. It's like, nah, you can march, you can traipse all through this with whatever you're wearing and however you're wearing it, and that's okay. But when we go outside, it's like, why you ain't got your tuxedo on? You're supposed to know the formalities of these things. Step to the curb when you see me walking. It's like, um, I thought we were sharing the sidewalk. <laughs> I didn't ask you why did you delve into your closet and put all that foolishness that you got on right now. Those seem like your personal problems. I think that I've always been wearing a coat. I definitely can take that and apply it to my life. And all of that has made me feel very very self-effacing it made me self-effacing in everything that I do in my writing and in my interactions and in my friends I've always kept really really quiet because I thought that maybe my coat was too loud <laughs> maybe Jamaica was too much maybe Guyana was too much maybe that passport picture I found of my great-grandmother holding three of her children in her lap as she emigrated was too much and it broke my heart to see that picture 
because I have my great grandmother's face almost completely. It's it's as if her face was transposed to my face. And I think about all of the terrible things she went through and how much she loved her own kids and her grandchildren because they still remember her fondly. And I remember her love being a protection. And then they came here. And they say that America was hard for them because the racial landscape was so different than Jamaica. In Jamaica, it's a classist thing. It's also a light-skinned, dark-skinned thing, and that's very pronounced. But in America, no matter how light or black you are, you're still a race. And I've try I've been trying to run out of race my whole life. Mm. I have been writing myself out of race and I've never written something that I've been proud of. And I guess the mm-hmm. new black gospel is the first thing that I'm really proud of. I even wrote today for next week's episode that I haven't been confident ever. I think that living in a racist society takes away your confidence completely. I think it's the kind of thing that destroys you. And then somehow, in all of that mess, in all of the shrapnel that has destroyed your body, you are somehow supposed to figure out the new person, the good person, the non-threatening person. Mm. And I gotta stop apologizing because I've been apologizing for so long for things that I shouldn't even be sorry about. I need to stop apologizing for being alive. And I wonder, do you feel that way too? Of course. It gets to a point where we gotta throw it back to, was it Douglas? That said pretty much like, how does it feel to wake up and be a problem? And you don't really understand why you are a problem. It's like, you know why, because people are constantly telling you, it's like, we don't like your kind. But we don't actually go into the nuances of this. And then we just start pretty much turning in into ourselves. It's like, okay, maybe they don't like me because of the way my nose shaped. Maybe they don't like me because of my lips. So maybe they don't like me just because of the skin. Maybe they don't like me because of this dress. Maybe they don't like me because of this money. And it still comes down to it that, They don't like me, period. So why (laughs) am I going to try to rationalize myself to them? Obviously, they're perfectly fine in my mind. And even if they aren't, it doesn't matter. So I'm not going to entertain it. (laughs) Because aren't people supposed to be people? Isn't that Mm. what colorblind racism teaches us? Yeah. And we're all, we all suffer from colorblind racism because mm-hmm. that's what the 90s was about. That's mm-hmm. all the 90s was. Mm-hmm. Shout outs to great programming from Nickelodeon, ABC. Fox. Even Fox back then was doing the damn thing. I mean, yeah. it's like everybody had their very diverse team, like the Magical School Bus. Asian kid, black kid, Spanish kid, white children. Everybody was there. And it's like, why does it seem like this programming is like showing me the future but not the present but you're talking about it as if it is the present 
because you're trying to make it into fruition. It's like, where did the ball drop? Where did the ball drop? Jay Smooth was recently on MSNBC having a discussion. And they were talking about Starbucks's recent conversation or promotion. I I don't know what it is, basically. (laughs) But basically, they wanted to have the baristas were allowed to engage in conversation with with the customers about how they felt about race. And it was supposed to be this opportunity to open up discussion about race. And Jay Smooth of the Ill Doctrine, which I've been following for years now because he's the illest, made a very, very important point. He said, why is racism always approached as a conversation? Mm. When we want to help anybody else, it's an action. When we go about handling the veterans, when we go about diseases, and honestly, Racism is a disease. It's a disease that we all suffer from. It's a disease that there is a cure for. And the cure for racism is knowing. It is action. But Jay Smooth said, why is it that whenever we talk about racism, it's always the beginning conversation? Why are we always kowtowing to those who don't know? Why are we taking the good time out of our day? Why are we taking the sweetness out of our hearts to put on their lips? And by there, I mean people who suffer from whiteness, people who suffer from systemic racism. Mm. I'm talking about the people that uphold it. Mm. And how do we stop talking and start doing you just do it. People need to take that Nike campaign and actually apply it to their lives. Just do it. I don't understand what there is to discuss. If something is blatantly wrong, what is there to discuss? You have already broken down in your mind that it's wrong. Other people around you are telling you it's wrong. So what is there to say? There was a recent story on the news of a man being brutalized. Joe, you want to talk about it? The man in the University of Virginia? Yep. So there was a young man, a college student, who was rejected entry. And, of course, it escalated into him being brutalized by the police, having his face bloodied on the sidewalk. His face kind of reminding me of Emmett Till. The same way that all of these bodies remind me of Emmett Till. And everyone tried to stop him, but... There were the people standing around seeing what happened, and the cops threatened them. And at a certain point, we gotta stop being scared of the cops. And they might kill us. And they will beat the hell out of us. And they will try to silence us, and the government will try to silence us. Because there will be more boys, and there will be more girls rejected entry, walking down the street, sitting in their homes, who are mentally ill, like me. People that have bipolar, like me. People like me who have sickle cell and sometimes need help from people that I would normally not ask help from. And we need actual help, not brutalization. Mm. 
It's like I last checked, Joe. Don't we pay taxes? Yeah. I pay taxes. Yeah, yeah. I just I... wanted to repeat that right now, slow for the IRS, because I know you're listening. I pay my taxes. We, we pay our taxes. We pay our taxes. Hmm? But what do our taxes afford mm-hmm. us? I thought it was all these civil liberties. I thought it was also to give these people a paycheck to uphold our civil liberties. But it seems those same people that we're paying, a.k.a. Uh, the people in blue, <clears throat> they seem to be able to violate those things as much as they are supposed to be upholding them. I don't get that. If I'm outside in the street and you're literally hired to basically be my security, why am I getting beat up my, by my security? If Jay-Z's security started whooping <laughs> his ass in the middle of the street, I don't think they'd have a job anymore. No, they certainly wouldn't. <laughs> so, I, I don't I don't get the joke. I, I don't understand what's happening here. It seems we get into conversations of race and then it starts becoming a discussion of, are you calling me a racist? Yes! There's no discussion. <laughs> Is <laughs> if you beating up people, talking about, oh, you playing hit the nigga with people. Uh, I don't think those black people are playing with you. It's not a game, you know, we like to, you know. It's not a game that we like to play. And we know some people that have actually played that game quite literally throwing stones at bodies and laughing. Mm-hmm. And I think about it. I think about it a lot. And it mm-hmm. kind of breaks my heart, to be honest. Because, see... I took that colorblind racism that we were all taught, but I applied it in a grander scheme. I applied it to taking people on a case-by-case basis, not a we're all the same basis because we're not all the same. And you need to understand that everyone has the ability to be racist. Mm. We all do. And it's not... The same, I don't mean to use racism and prejudice interchangeably, as they are not Mm -hmm. the same thing. It is impossible for black people and people of color to be racist against white people in America. I'm going to say that again. It is actually impossible for people of color in America to be racist against white people. Racism is both systemic and systematic. I'll break that down for y'all too. Because we're going to do some learning today. Well. Okay? Systematic is the method by which it is carried out. Systemic is how our bodies function. It is the complete picture. You can't have... Systemic and not systematic. And you can't have systematic without some with systemic. So we need to understand the language we use creates realities. And how are you all, my listeners, what reality are you creating? Because I know right here, Cooley and I are trying to create a new reality. Well... Or just preach to the one that already exists that they are magically transformed. I'm like, people think they in the Matrix. They see Keanu Reeves and they think this is real. And it is real. It's reflecting the fact that you are going through a world on made-up possibilities that you have made into physical ones. Buildings, jobs, all that jazz. You made those things. Those were dreams. You made them into fruition. So... Why is it that I just have to fantasize about being treated equal, but you can actually live that? I don't get that, Joe. 
I don't get it either. I also don't understand why I'm requested to assimilate. <laughs> so you want to talk about assimilation and what that actually means for one's psyche? True. Because most people think it just means, oh, well, you know, I'm in Rome. Do as the Romans do. And it's like, no, that's optional. That's vacational. That's like saying I'm going to New Orleans and I can just get smacked because I'm not a New Orleans. And that's what I think that I'm supposed to do because I'm just traversing through here. Eh, nope. Assimilation is literally you taking away your entire identity and absorbing another. And it's not out of growth. It is out of the, the deprecation of oneself. It is to take on another's fold and say that this is okay, even if it's detrimental to me, which is American assimilation. It is completely detrimental. It erases everything that is pre that is important about you. Everything, really. Mm -hmm. See, a lot of people, including my mom, <laughs> and I think my mom was more concerned about the fact that she thought I was going to become a Black Panther, <laughs> incorporate the, you know, the beret, and obviously not the gun, because as I said earlier, I have a mental illness, although there will be an episode in the future about what it means to be Black and bipolar, um, and how mental illness is pathologized in young people of color, but... I think about when my mom used to call me, say, you know, Joe, don't, don't do that much. Hang hmm. back a little bit. Hang back. Hmm. And the thing is, she wanted me to be safe. It wasn't hanging back because she didn't believe in me or believe in my capabilities. It's because she knew how dangerous the world is. She knew that sometimes you can be at the right place at the wrong time or the wrong place at the right time mm. and something terrible will happen to you. So instead, I quietly assimilated. I quietly took away the parts that made me me. And I worked mm. out of myself while working into myself. And I know that sounds crazy and I was working myself into circles. Mm. But... All that time I thought I was learning about being black, I was really learning how to dodge questions but give smart answers. Mm, I feel you. It's like the backhanded of a joke. It's like the smile of a waiter. You know they're not really smiling. They ain't happy to be serving you. <laughs> Especially rude people. Mm-hmm. Um, shout out to the rude people. We don't employ you. Nope. <laughs> so... There's a double face that's wore. They're a little mask. What was it? Dunbar? What, black skins, white masks? Black skins, white masks. That uh, was for... We wear the mask. Oh, that yeah, that was... Paul yeah. Lawrence Dunbar? All right. I think so. Okay, cool. We then. can fact check and we will make all of this present at the end of the episode. Cool, cool. He's like, we wear the mask. We, mat we wear the mask that grins and lies. It hides our cheeks, it shades our eyes. Why should the world be otherwise? Because we wear the mask. Makes me think about Black Skin's White Masks by Frantz mm -hmm. Fanon, who could be considered quite problematic, but... As all men are. As a lot of men are. Mm -hmm. uh, but we'll get into that at a different point in time. Um, but he wrote a book called Black Skin's White Masks that I always come back to. Because it's the book that helps me remember that it's okay 
to not wear it. That wearing it is ultimately detrimental Hmm. to my mental health. And that blackness, in the same way that it is pathologized by America's systems of oppression, can also be pathologized in one's behavior. And as we said before, that coat, that, that coat to protect us from the rain is ultimately smothering. So we wanted to actually get into another topic. We wanted to talk about what it means to be a woman. And ultimately, this would work right into what it means to be black. Because as two women-identifying women, um, we would like to discuss how those two mix. So, Cooley, what does woman mean to you? Woman, because the word sounds like womb, makes me think of growing, thinking of birth. Thinking of not the expectation of giving life in the always associated way of physically making a child, because that's just a limitation. And women are far more deeper than that one limitation. We give life to everything. And I'm not being just, you know, hubris. I'm not just being prideful just because it's my gender. It is literally a fact that women birth everything. I guess I think for me, being a woman, I had to figure out what being a woman was at the same time I had to figure out what being black was. And I realized that for me, being a woman was equally as oppressive as not wanting to acknowledge my blackness. See, this summer, I got really, really sick. Um, And I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about it in a way that I usually don't talk about my sickness. But I have sickle cell disease, a disease that does not get as much coverage as it should. And I had to go to the hospital. And all of the people that took care of me were women. All of the people that came to visit me, with a few exceptions, were women. And they loved me. And I guess I learned how to be a woman through being loved. Because a lot of women are asked to love other people at the expense of themselves. Hmm. Always at the expense of themselves. It's the expectation. It's like, just because I have a vagina, I'm just expected to love you. I'm supposed to expect, expected, I am expected to appreciate everything about you, even if you don't acknowledge my existence. And that's mm-hmm. crazy, man. Like, that's actually out of control. We don't mean crazy in an ableist way, but it's just no. like actually. Mad. It's mad. It's, it, it's, it does not, it fills me with rage to think that we are supposed to sacrifice what's good for us simply because another person needs help. And it's not to say that we shouldn't love people for people. It's not to say that we shouldn't give ourselves when the person is giving just as much. But it is mad to let yourself go so that someone else's spirit can survive. Mm -hmm. Especially when they have no context of your spirit. We're not talking about ungrateful children. (laughs) We're not even talking about 
passive aggressive husbands or spouses or anybody we're talking about we're not talking about any of that petty stuff we're literally talking about your oneness it's like i recognize your oneness but you can't recognize mine that is the main thing how can we exercise any other things any acts of love and you don't recognize me you don't see me and isn't that what being a black woman is essentially that we are always working ourselves out of invisibility are we always pulling disappearing acts oh we're good at it Mm -hmm. you think that people can ghost look at a black woman she out it's like you don't even realize she did it's like until she starts speaking you don't realize you did and then you come at her because she's speaking it it's like wait what (laughs) audrey lord said it best your silence will not protect you and maybe that's why we're here Maybe we're here to not be silent. Maybe hearing our voices as uncomfortable as that is, and I'm sure that we're really new at getting our voices recorded and not only recording them, but disseminating that recording. But we're here to be heard. We're here to break our silence for once and forever. We've come to the end of the first volume of Homeschool. For any information about the topics discussed in this episode, please visit www.jacelliahughes.com. Like our Facebook page by searching for The New Black Gospel. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter with the handle New Black Gospel. Homeschool episodes happen every third episode, so stay tuned. Thank you for listening and making our words our bond. Stay black, stay blessed. This is Cooley Daggers and Joe from the New Black Gospel. We out. We out, man. We, we out.